Welcome to our journey through Tudor Art and Majesty at the Met Museum. Note that this episode is also a video episode, so hop on over to my YouTube channel if you want to watch it there. Hello and welcome to all of my wonderful listeners. This is Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, a special video episode. I also want to give a big shout out and thank you to my patrons. You are wonderful. I appreciate you so much for joining me and helping me make this all possible. Thank you. And I want to give a big shout out and welcome to our newest rebel, Eileen Lavoie. Welcome, Eileen. We're so glad to have you part of the Royals, Rebels and Romantics patron family. Now, if you're not already a patron, there's some fun stuff coming up. So you may want to think about joining us. Today, we are going to New York City, one of my favorite places, and the Met Museum, one of my favorite places in New York, to meet the Tudors and experience the art and majesty of Tudor England. I thought it would be fun to share, and hopefully you're able to watch this. For those of you who are listening, I'll describe it as well. But these images at the exhibition in New York City at the Met right now are just spectacular. And so I wanted to share some with you. I will tell you, and I'll repeat this a couple of times, Photography was allowed. I took all of these photos. They are 100% not professional photos. In fact, if you want to see even more, I mean, you can get my sense of cameras and weird angles to try and reduce the glare and all of that. But there are some absolutely magnificent reproductions of the images in this book right here. I'm pointing to it's hard to point on camera, but this is the exhibition book and it is marvelous. And I will have an, a link to that information about that in the show notes. And so if that's something you would like to enjoy as well, please do, because it's fabulous. All right. So what I want to do is take you with me into the Met to share some of these images, tell you a little bit about it. So let me, I know we're all big Zoom aficionados right now. So I'm going to share my screen. Okay. So here we are, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England. That's the name of the exhibition. So we will be going into the Met and we're starting to imagine early modern England. So let's just sort of jump back in time. This is a tapestry that we're looking at here that was commissioned by Robert Dudley, Queen Elizabeth's quote, favorite, BFF, whatever you want to consider him. He had this wonderful banqueting house in London. Now, a banqueting house, as many of you will know, and if you want to know more, my dear friend, Brigitte Webster of Tudor Experience um, has a lot of information about banqueting houses, and she actually has added an absolutely gorgeous banqueting house to her property. So if you are headed to England or if you are there, absolutely um, put on your bucket list a visit to Brigida's house and the Tudor experience there. You can see the banqueting house. Robert Dudley also had one and he commissioned tapestries like this one to adorn his banqueting house to show off some of his wealth, some of his glory. And you can see, um, you see 
his arms are displayed and around the arms, there is that garter because he was a member of the order of the garter. His motto, droit et loyal, um, right and loyal. Uh, that is how he positioned himself, at least in the court of Elizabeth I. And this shows uh, how he promotes the queen. It's a very royal favorite type tapestry that would have hung on his wall. Perhaps she was able to see it. She did visit him there, we know, because this was for his London house. But also, it gives us a sense, Dudley was not just all about serving the queen. He was also about promoting Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. And so you can see the self-promotion going on there. And that is the theme of early modern England. So we're going to go from early modern England to the Met Museum. Here we are at the famous entrance of the Met Museum, and you are now able to go inside and experience the Tudors. And this is just, I was able to be there a few weeks ago, and it's so exciting. So I want to start with, this is their entry, and you see the title piece there, but you see these beautiful little figures. They're actually angels, and they're holding candlesticks and this is all part of a tomb that was intended for Henry VIII. You'll notice they are here and they are not part of that tomb. It's sort of a funny story. But initially, these little guys were part of a tomb. Now, you may have heard of Cardinal Wolsey, Henry VIII's first great minister. And Wolsey was an up and coming and just kept coming and going up and up and rose to great heights during the early reign of Henry VIII and became so wealthy, there was some question about who was wealthier, Henry VIII or Cardinal Wolsey. Well, Wolsey began planning a grand tomb so that his name and image and legacy would go down in history. And so um, these bits were probably either commissioned for that tomb, or this might not surprise you because Henry VIII took over a lot of Wolsey's palaces when Wolsey fell from favor, he took over the tomb as well. And so these little guys may have been added to the plans when it became part of Henry VIII's planned tomb. He decided Wolsey had a good idea about his name and honor and legacy lasting through time and designed a great tomb for himself. And so these were designed um, by Benedetto who came to England. He was working at first with Torregiano, who was Henry VII's great sculptor. And he, in fact, helped finish the, the work at the Henry VII chapel for the tomb of Henry VII. Now, Henry VII planned a grand tomb, and it happened. Henry VIII planned an even grander tomb, but it didn't actually happen. It was never completed. And so these angels that are part of the collection and are in um, the uh, the records of Henry VIII, you can see these angels referenced, and they were intended then to go in his tomb. His children just kind of never got around to putting together this grand tomb. Elizabeth I came the closest. She seemed to commission a different um, style or a, a different idea, different image for the tomb than maybe Henry had, but she never carried it out. And so these angels, and we'll see a candlestick. Also, if you go to the exhibition, you'll see this beautiful candlestick that was also intended for that tomb. So it's sort of funny to start with something that was intended to show off the majesty of Henry VIII, but his children just didn't ever quite make it happen. 
Now, let's take a little step back from Henry VIII. This is the union of the families of Lancaster and York, and you can see it in there, um, with the arms of those who have been chosen knights of the most honorable order of the garter from that time to this day. This is a piece from the British Museum in London, and you see how it's all arranged within this rose. It reflects the Tudor rose. In the top part, you see Henry VII off to the left. You see Elizabeth of York. You very clearly see the crown between them, and the idea is to continue to stake a claim for the legitimacy and explain the legitimacy, the rights, and the the glory of the Tudor dynasty. You'll also see this was created in 1589. So this is almost at the end of the reign of Elizabeth I, and this story continues to be told. The Tudor Rose has really taken a strong hold on the imagination and the art in England throughout the Tudor reign, and it's really celebrated during the reign of Elizabeth. And so you see the garter. These are all garter knights, and the phrase, evil come to him who thinks evil, is all over it. Sometimes this is called Talbot's Rose because it was um, a member, Thomas Talbot, who was a member of the Society for Antiquities for Queen Elizabeth, or Antiquaries for Queen Elizabeth, is one of the designers of it. So it is sometimes referred to as Talbot's Rose. And Jatotis Hundius, um, best known for his maps, was the one who actually created the engraving. And so this was a really spectacular showcase piece. And it really does show how the Tudor Rose so came to be identified with this family, with this dynasty, right up through the end. And of course, the Tudor Rose still carries on today and exists and is continuing. You know, when we all look to the coronation of King Charles and he is wearing that mantle, look for the Tudor Rose. It's there. Speaking of mantles, this is not a mantle, it's a cope. And it is a cope that was designed during the reign of Henry VII. And it literally is the gold standard of his reign. We often think of Henry VII as being um, very miserly and penny pinching. And we know that at the end of his reign, he literally wanted to sign every page that was in the accounting books and keeping track of the money. He wanted to be very involved, but he wasn't always that way. And at the beginning of his reign and, and, really right up until the death of Elizabeth of York. He spent lavishly. He understood Henry VII, despite having been in exile, maybe because of being in exile, really understood the need to project magnificence as part of his majesty. He needed to look every inch the king, and he was determined to do so. So he designed and created this beautiful cope here. And you can see he was trying to outdo his the people he considered his rivals, which included his contemporaries, the other monarchs of Europe, and let's just be honest, the other kings in Europe at the time, but also his predecessors, in particular, Edward IV, who had been known for magnificence and Henry VII was not to be outdone. So you see the beautiful portcullis. That is the symbol of the Beaufort, especially his mother, Margaret Beaufort, through whom he had his Lancastrian claim to the throne. You also see red roses, red and white roses. And in the case of this gorgeous cloth of gold gown, of course, 
the white in the Tudor roses and the white roses is silver thread. So it's just spectacular and sparkling. And um, you just get an idea of how Henry VII might have promoted magnificence during his reign. So it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. And here he is. This is considered the most important surviving portrait of Henry VII by many people. You know, they're just during the reign of Henry VIII, portraiture really expands, sort of explodes. And we have so many portraits, but that's not necessarily true of Henry VII. We have a few. This one is is very important. Um, Some of you may have seen it. It's often used to represent the king. Um, It's He's 48 by the time it's painted in 1505. He's been on the throne for a while. His wife had fairly recently died. Elizabeth of York had died fairly recently. In fact, there was some effort by Henry VII to look for a new wife. He had lost his son, Prince Arthur. He now had only one son, Henry, little Prince Henry, who's now the heir to the throne. And he realized it would probably strengthen his dynasty considerably if he could marry again and have more children. So there was some thought that this may have been commissioned um, by the Emperor Charles, and there was a possibility of a marriage between Henry VII, I'm sorry, the Emperor Maximilian, Charles was not the emperor yet, the Emperor Maximilian, and there was a possibility of marriage between the emperor's daughter, Margaret, and Henry VII. And so this may have been one of those, hey, do you want to marry me kind of portraits that was sent back and forth. Henry is very much showing off. You see the gold cloak he is wearing and the fine fur, the very heavy gold chain. He's also around his neck is um, an emblem of the Order of the Fleece. And this may have been a nod to the Burgundians because Philip was the founder of the Order of the Feast the fleece. And so, you know, it's good to show, hey, I'm a member of your order kind of thing. He's also, of course, holding that Tudor rose. And this is, you know, a dynastic portrait, possibly a wedding portrait. We know that that wedding did not happen. And in fact, Henry VII remained a widower for the final years of his reign without Elizabeth. I think he becomes that sort of suspicious. He really has no one he can trust he is very suspicious and and is trying to gather more and more and more wealth in some um, maybe less than honest means to shore up the weaknesses he perceives in his hold on the throne. So this is a really important portrait and it was very exciting to see it. All right. Speaking of Henry's, we have this wonderful portrait. This is one of the Holbein portraits. And of course, Holbein is... um, often associated with Henry VIII. And we have many portraits that are, quote, after Holbein or in the fashion of Holbein or a Holbein workshop. We don't have all that many Holbein portraits of Henry VIII that remain, but this is one. It's one I had never seen in person before, so I was so excited to see it. Um, He's dressed in cloth of silver. You can see gold thread. You can see the cloth of gold in his sleeves. It's a very opulent portrait. Excuse me, the slashing you see where the linen shirt is pulled through is a sign of wealth. And then there are, it looks like rubies and gold uh, among the slashes. So it is just really a portrait to show off 
the wealth of Henry VIII. You also see, I'm sorry, I'm going to just take a quick sip of water. You also see that the um, embroidery around the neck of his shirt is in gold as well and several, several jewels in his hat. So this is Henry. I think it's kind of fun because he is so large, he cannot even be contained by the portrait. He's sort of bursting through. Um, There aren't a lot of copies of this portrait. So it's thought that perhaps it was made as a gift for Francois the first of France. You know, the Kings would often, I have this wonderful gift for you. It's a portrait of me. Um, and that did happen. And so it's thought that that may have happened with this portrait for Francois or someone else on the continent. Because typically when a portrait of the King stayed in England, there were a number of copies made. And the fact that we don't have a number of copies of this portrait leads some historians to believe it may have gone to the continent and then come back to England. It is in Henry's inventory, but it is now in Madrid, in the museum in Madrid. So I was so excited to see it at the Met. I'd never seen it in person. Now, this shows us a significant change in the religious practice during the Tudors and particularly during the reign of Henry VIII. So for the first several years of his reign, he had resisted to the point of persecution and prosecution um, the publication of the Bible in English. But as uh, his divorce was not, or annulment rather, was not granted by the Pope, and he decided to take matters into his own hands and establish himself as the supreme head of the Church of England, he then came to embrace the publication of the Bible in English. And so you see this great Bible, it's called the Great Bible because it is so big. But if you look up at the top, you will see Henry in all his glory, receiving the word of God directly from God. And then it is Henry who distributes distributes the word of God to his ministers, to his political ministers led by Cromwell and his religious ministers led by Cranmer. Two of the many Thomases in the court of Henry VIII, Cromwell and Cramner. Now, it's interesting because this Bible was printed many times. It was reprinted. Um, it actually, 1540, when it is first printed, uh, is not a good year for Thomas Cromwell. By the end of the year, he has been executed. The Bible survives him, and it goes on to be printed. Um, it is required to be in every church in England during the reign of Henry VIII. We don't know how that was enforced, but certainly if somebody came to visit, representing the king came to visit your church, you better have a Bible in there. So it's thought that between 10,000 and 20,000 copies may have been printed. It was a huge bestseller. So there you go. Really represents what Henry VIII is doing in terms of religion. Now, we're so excited because Henry VIII finally had his baby boy. And this portrait is a really fun one. <coughs> we know from the New Year's Eve gift roll that it was given to Henry VIII by Holbein himself. It is a Holbein portrait of Edward, and it was given to the king. I think Holbein may have won the gift-giving prize that year, giving the king a beautiful portrait of his little boy. Um, the the Princess Elizabeth and the Princess Mary, and then they were the Lady Mary and the Lady Elizabeth. Anyway, we don't have little baby portraits of them because they were just girls. But here we have this longed for, waited for, finally he's here. 
Edward and you can see the way he's dressed in crimson and in cloth of gold. He has a little cap that is adorned with silver and gold threads and the feather. And even the little rattle he is holding is designed to look like a scepter. So there is so much messaging in this portrait. And then in case you miss it, the inscription along the bottom encourages Edward to be inspired by the magnificence and the wonderfulness of his father, Henry VIII, and then to carry that on. So it was a perfect gift for the king. Um, This actually is at the National, when it's not in New York, at this exhibition or traveling around, it's at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Interesting that it would be there, but it really is a wonderful portrait. And you do get a sense of Holbein's you know, you look at the hands and the face and just the detail. It really is a very lifelike portrait, a great example of Holbein and what a fine painter he was and how he gives us this view of the Tudors that really helps us think we know them. Well, speaking of Edward, of course, he grows up. This portrait is attributed to Scrotts. Um, because it's very much like many of his, but you see Edward in profile. Many of the portraits of Edward as he is almost king and then becomes king and then throughout his reign as king, he's a young boy. And so his portraits typically show him in that sort of famous Henry VIII Superman stance with his hands on his hips and his legs spread, excuse me, apart. And that's how we usually see Edward. The profile portraits, there are only a handful of them. And so this is a really nice one to be able to see. Now, you see Edward very magnificently dressed in black, which was a color of royalty. You see all of the gold work. You see him wearing crimson. I mean, this is definitely, look at his hat. He is showing off the gold and the jewels there. He's holding a flower that's probably a rose. It looks like a rose. And you see the other flowers that are along with him. They are turning sort of away from the sun. If you see, especially those two roses in the far left of the portrait, they're sort of turning away from the sun and to Edward. The sun, in fact, is sort of only up there in the corner. It does We don't even see it all. It's kind of off to the side. It's Edward that is really providing the light and the glory of the Tudors. And it was really important for the messaging that Edward was the glory of the Tudors, that he in some looks like his father. He's just carrying that right on. The previous two child kings to come to the throne in England, Richard II and Henry VI, had had very disastrous ends to their reigns. And in fact, dynasty had changed. You know, we went, we we entered the Lancastrian dynasty with Richard II being deposed. And then Henry VI is defeated twice in battle, and Edward IV twice takes the throne from him to put the Yorkists on the throne. So the the history of child kings was not great. And so the idea of promoting Edward as a fine, upstanding, true tutor, just going along, carrying on this dynastic majesty was very important. And you can see that in this portrait. Now, Mary, when we come to Mary, and I love this portrait, I just think it is wonderful in so many ways. Um, Mary had to fight pretty much throughout her life for the throne. It did not come easy. She was princess and recognized as the heir in her childhood. But when Henry VIII set aside 
Catherine of Aragon pretty dramatically and cruelly. Uh, Mary lost her position. She lost her legitimate status. She lost her place in the succession. She lost the ability to spend time with her mother. I mean, she had a lot of losses over that period of time. She was restored in the Third Succession Act to the succession, but still illegitimate. And so it was not that difficult for Edward to use this that illegitimate status to set her aside in favor of Lady Jane Grey when he realized he was dying. But Mary was having none of it. And she fought for what she believed and her mother, Catherine of Aragon, had taught her was her right to the throne. And you see her in this portrait, which was painted not long after her coronation. In fact, um, Eworth was offered a sitting with Mary. So he was able to meet with her. We believe this was painted from life. In fact, there are probably four other portraits from that sitting with Mary. But look at the magnificence of what she's wearing. So the pendant she's wearing with the cross seems to be from her mother. It matches some of the descriptions in her mother's inventory. And then that gorgeous big jewel is probably Henry VIII's and that pendant, the pearl that's hanging from it. And so these are the the height, the magnificence of the Tudors. You see that it's a gold brocade gown with amazing kind of detailed work. Look at the sleeves, they're slashed, they're jeweled, they're embroidered. You can see that she is wearing rings. The pose she is using actually is a pose that Holbein used really often. You may recognize it from portraits of Christina of Denmark, Holbein's famous portrait of her, and that famous portrait, Anne of Cleves, also has that, you know, facing front, looking, hands at the waist kind of stance. And that's often what the women were painted after Holbein came. So Eworth is going along and painting that. And you just see the richness of the fur that she's wearing and the jewels. Mary came to the throne and, you know, she had to fight for it. There was no battle with Jane Grey. Jane Grey's followers just sort of fell away. But Mary then had to reimagine with her council the coronation, When she turned to Mary Philip, she had to reimagine what it meant to be a royal bride. The laws were changed to accommodate a woman on the throne. A law was passed by parliament under Mary's very first parliament to specify that she had all the same rights as any of her male predecessors. And so this is a great example of how seriously Mary took her claim to the throne and her responsibility as being queen and her commitment to the glory, to the majesty of the Tudors and reflecting that in the art. So even when you came to court, even if you weren't able to see the queen, if you were to see this portrait or others like it, you would get that message. And another way that both Mary and Elizabeth, and I have both of those here, we're really looking at the portrait of Mary. It's a portrait medal of her when she's queen of England. And you can see again, the detail. She looks very determined as she's looking off to the side and these portrait medals would have been circulated. So even if you didn't get to court to see these original paintings, you would likely have seen these portrait medals. And in fact, the medal of Mary, she is presented in her stance, in the style of her gown, in some of the jewels This is very much associated with her marriage to Philip of Spain, because this is the way a Habsburg queen would have been represented. This is a very continental look 
for her. And although her marriage to Philip turned out not to be very popular in England, there was a rebellion about it, um, but it was very popular in Catholic Europe and very popular with Mary herself. And so she embraced this idea that she would be portrayed as a continental, as a Catholic, as a Habsburg queen, and part of that family. And you see Elizabeth, although she is portrayed very differently, Elizabeth in her medal here is very much an English queen, and we'll look at some of her imaging. But also, even when Elizabeth, yes, she'd made a lot of differences, a lot of very obvious differences between her reign and Mary's reign, between the way she looked and the way Mary looked between her not getting married and Mary marrying a foreigner. Yes, yes, yes. Lots of differences. But Mary also taught Elizabeth a great deal. And both of them using coins and medals in this way is just one example of the many things that Elizabeth did learn from her sister. Now, if you've heard me anywhere, you know that this is one of my absolute absolute favorite portraits of Elizabeth. It's attributed to Gower. It's been attributed to Stephen Mueller as well. So we're not 100% sure um, who painted this, but it is just a wonderful portrait. It is part of a private collection. Uh, You may remember that the Tudor exhibition at the Met was supposed to happen in 2020 before COVID shut everything down. And this portrait had actually traveled from the collection, the private collection, to the United States and was at the Yale Center for British Art. And I was able to see it there before everything shut down in 2020. So to actually be able to see it twice in person is a huge highlight for me. It is just wonderful. And my little phrase up there, everything depends. This portrait is widely thought to be associated with Elizabeth's many courtships, particularly in the early days of her reign. And we know that the Duke of Farias said he thought that everything depends upon the man this woman may marry. And everyone assumed she would marry somebody. They were just waiting to see which of all these courtiers she would marry. So this may very well have been one of the portraits that was painted to be sent to potential courtiers and court who were courting Elizabeth. So whether it was going to be sent with a courtier along to the court of the King of Sweden, or perhaps the Archduke Charles, or some of the other foreign potential suitors, um, courtiers from Elizabeth's court would carry these paintings of Elizabeth. And this may have been one of those. You see how it is just a wonderful, the queen is in crimson. Again, her sleeves are slashed. The linen shirt is pulled through. There are jewels everywhere. There's a jewel around, even around her waist and hanging. There are jewels in her hair, a lot of pearls already. Um, She embraces pearls throughout her reign more and more as she positions herself later as the Virgin Queen. And we'll take a look at that. But These are some wonderful jewels. You also see the carnation she's holding, and that is a sign of marriage. The um, very opulent foliage with fruits and flowers, bearing fruit, flowering, all um, ideas or symbols of marriage and indeed motherhood, because that's what it's all about. If you are the monarch, you are expected to produce an heir. Henry VIII had spent his entire reign trying to have an heir and a spare meaning two sons. Henry VII was able to, but then one of his sons died. Edward had not had children. Mary had not had children. So now we're looking to Elizabeth to carry on the Tudor reign, the Tudor dynasty, the Tudor name through her children. Now, 
there might be just a little joke here because the oak leaves around the flower on her shoulder, the oak was associated with Robert Dudley. So it may be there was just a little private joke there, even if this is going out as a potential marriage partner, that there's still a soft spot for Robert Dudley. Of course, she doesn't marry him either, but it is really a wonderful portrait. And to be able to see it in person twice is a huge highlight for me. And so I would encourage if you can get to the Met, go uh, as you, as I have told the story before, I know when it was at Yale, um, I decided I would of course go to Yale to see it. And my husband could not understand why I would go all that way to see one portrait. It is a portrait that is worth traveling to see, even if there's just one. Fortunately, if you go to the Met, there's all kinds of stuff to see as there was at Yale, but this is the portrait I went for. Now, Here's the end of Elizabeth's reign. So we saw the beginning of Elizabeth's reign with the Hampton portrait, the previous portrait where she's young and maybe going to get married and um, everything's ahead. Throughout her reign, she very carefully controls the way her image is portrayed. And this, this is one of the most famous portraits of Elizabeth I, of course, the rainbow portrait. This is at the end of her reign. This was probably painted around 1602. The queen did not really look like this, but you can tell that her image is being really carefully preserved. By this time, and actually for a few years now, it's been very obvious that Elizabeth is not going to have a child. And so the succession is up in the air. And the way Elizabeth seems to be responding to the questions and potential crisis, I mean, a succession crisis can lead to civil war. So it's not just, we might think, oh, okay, you decide not to get married and have children. That's totally your right. But if you are the monarch in a time when the monarchy actually ruled and when it was very important to have a strong continuation of the monarch from one to the next and a steady succession, and when that hasn't happened, there has been civil war, there were a lot of reasons to pressure the queen to name a successor. If you're not going to give us a successor, at least choose somebody. Well, Elizabeth continued to resist, and her plan seemed to be to just present herself as someone who would live forever. No need to worry about that pesky succession crisis. I'll just keep living. And so she did portray herself as eternally young. It was not all about vanity. It was also about the strength of the government, of the monarchy, and the peace, and the prosperity of England. That was all bound up in her image. And so an image like this, where she looks young, where she has this golden, blonde, reddish, beautiful, flowing hair, where her skin is clear and bright, and her eyes are bright and shiny and So it's about her image as well as all of the trappings of monarchy that she wears. Now, if you met her in person, then those trappings of monarchy that she is wearing are intended to maybe get you past the fact that her actual face doesn't really look like the face in the portrait. So you are seeing by this time these roughs that surround Elizabeth as if they've become so big, they're like wings and they are described as moving as she walks and creating this sort of aura of almost being an angel on the earth. Of course, angels live forever. So that reinforces that the amount of pearls and you see that there are pearls around her neck and there are pearls in her hair and there are pearls dangling from dangling from both wrists. I mean, there are pearls everywhere. There are jewels everywhere. She is presenting herself 
in her clothing as wise. And you see that serpent, which was a symbol of wisdom. Um, and, and it was jeweled on her sleeve. And of course, the colors would have popped even more than they do now. They have faded some in time. What she's holding, speaking of the colors fading, it doesn't look like much of anything was, in fact, a very brightly colored rainbow. And there's a little phrase there, no rainbow without the sun. So she is the sun literally creating the rainbow. She is wisdom. And you see, of course, and I have seen this one in person as well. It's a little strange because, yes, those are eyes and ears and lips on her cloak that she's wearing to probably reinforce that idea. She said once, I see all, I hear all, and I say nothing. Also that her government has continued, thanks to Cecil and Walsingham, they have seen and heard all and have continued to protect Elizabeth. And now we've shifted into the time, not of William Cecil, but of his son, Robert, who is probably the one who commissioned this portrait, Robert Cecil. There was a Cecil at Elizabeth's side throughout her reign, literally from the first day when she took, <clears throat> when she inherited the throne from her sister, Mary. And William Cecil was the first minister she appointed then to his son, Robert Cecil, who was with her until she died. And he is most likely the one to have, again, commissioned this portrait. So this is the end of the Tudors. We see how firmly embedded they are in this idea that the appearance of majesty and the association of that with art, that the art is used to project their majesty. During the Reformation, in the time of Henry VIII, the focus of art and the celebration of art shifted away from a lot of the iconography and religious portraits that had been um, celebrated and hung everywhere up until that time. And, you know, as the Reformed Church that we sort of refer to as Protestantism, it is nothing like Protestantism today, but the Church of Elizabeth, the Church of Edward, the Church of Henry VIII, of course, Mary's the outlier there when she comes to the throne, but the churches that uh, moved away from idolatry and iconography really turned into a celebration of portraits of people. And here we see the idea where Elizabeth has made herself someone to worship. Some ways, replacing the Virgin Mary with the Virgin Queen. And so you see this real celebration of that in art like this and right up to the end of her reign. Again, this is thought to have been painted in 1602 and she dies in early 1603. So right up to the end. So here we have, this is just sort of a great overview and, and summary of this exhibition. Um, this is an allegory of the Tudor dynasty and uh, it's it's based on Lucas Tahir's portrait, The Allegory of the Tudor Dynasty, which is very much, both of these are created in the reign of Elizabeth. So you look back over all of it. Uh, Henry VII, sadly, is, is not part of this allegory, even though he's the one that got things started. But we have Henry VIII enthroned. He is very much celebrated during Elizabeth's reign. You do have Edward kneeling at the throne of his father. He's quite small. He seems to be fading a little bit. And remember, this is in the reign of Elizabeth, and Edward disinherited Elizabeth as well as Mary to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne. So he's not necessarily, um, she, she does speak kindly of Edward throughout her reign, but he, he takes a less important role here. 
you have Mary with Philip bringing in war and and sort of taking the country back from the true religion that Henry VIII had brought and had restored to England. So Henry, then Edward, Mary's a step back, and now Elizabeth. And you see Elizabeth, and if you look at the way this is designed, it almost looks like she is walking and is going to walk right in front of Henry to take her place in the center of things. Um, There are descriptions Number one is under Henry VIII and talks about Henry VIII. Number two on the left, which is under Mary, talks about Mary and Edward. And number three on the right, under Elizabeth, the sacred queen Elizabeth. And later, all the world admires this maiden queen is the final statement on the on the last little panel of this engraving. And that is very much how the end of Elizabeth's reign, um, and this is between 1595 and 1600, again, the end of her reign is celebrating her as the maiden queen that the whole world celebrates and that she has become the culmination of the Tudor dynasty. And this is, of course, true in some ways because she is the end of the Tudor dynasty. However, Elizabeth's care in cultivating the right relationships did result in um, a completely peaceful transition from the Tudors to the Stuarts. James comes down. Most people, not so much Catholics, although Catholics were hopeful James might be a little more um, accepting. It didn't work out that well. And in fact, it turns out that the Stuarts were not nearly as successful as their predecessors. And in fact, the second Stuart King, Charles I, ended up losing his head at the hands of Parliament. So things continue to be very exciting in the Stuart reign. But I do appreciate your joining me. I'm going to go ahead and come back. I'll stop the share and come back to you. You're joining me for this walk from Tudor and early modern England to the Met Museum in New York today to celebrate art and majesty of the Tudors. Thank you so much for joining me, for listening, for watching. Thank you for your support. And again, thank you so much to the patrons who continue to make it possible for all of us to shake up history together. Thank you for joining me as we walk through history at the Met Museum. I always enjoy shaking up history with you.